That is our mission, top secret operation that changed the course of World War Two, by Stephen Phelps. Stephen Phelps is a writer, producer, and broadcaster. He read PPE at Brasenose College and began a career with the BBC, following five years importing Citroen two CVs from Belgium. He moved to television for the successful start of daytime TV and later ran his own TV production company, Just Television, following time as producer of BBC's Rough Justice, deputy editor of Watchdog and director Hong Kong for BBC World Service Television, overseeing the start of their Asian service on Star TV. At Just Television, he specialised in investigative programmes in the field of law, justice and policing, in particular through the series Trial and Error for Channel 4, which exposed and investigated major miscarriages of justice. After completing an MA in creative writing at UEA, Stephen began to concentrate on writing. He now specialises in history and radio drama. Recent drama credits include the BBC Radio 4 afternoon play, Wordsmith, a detective story featuring a forensic linguist, a drama on three, the BBC Radio 3, Piper Alpha, a drama doc reconstructing the events of the Piper Alpha oil rig disaster in real time on the 20th anniversary. Once a Friend was an afternoon play for BBC Radio 4, Walking the Line, a Friday play drama documentary about the lives of prison officers, and Clearwater, another drama documentary about a man's struggle to cope with the mystery disappearance of his son at sea. He has five feature-slash-TV scripts in development, as well as a stage play. His first book, The Tizard Mission, was published in November 2010 in the USA. It tells the extraordinary story of how Britain's top scientists travelled in secret to America in the fall of 1940 to give away all their country's wartime secrets to secure US support in the war. I began to research Sir Henry Tizard and his secret mission several years ago, one of those war stories that we British seem to specialise in, wartime secrets that we could never quite bring ourselves to tell anyone about, even when the war was over. As I began to research Tizard's mission and the contents of the plain black box he took with him to America, I slowly began to understand their significance to both the war effort and to the shaping of the post-war world. August 1940 in Great Britain was warm and unusually dry. Clear skies and the lowest rainfall since records began. Perfect flying weather. And the Battle of Britain was at its height. All eyes were focused on the skies over southern England. But 200 miles to the northwest, on the quayside of Liverpool docks, Britain's wartime future was at stake in a very different way. Because a small team of men were boarding a liner, the Duchess of Richmond. Ahead of them lay a hazardous Atlantic crossing. A handful of men, all of them in sober suits, smoking the occasional pipe, unlikely heroes, but they were Britain's top scientists and engineers, and they were carrying with them possibly the most precious cargo of the war, a black japanned deed box. In it, Britain's most valuable technological secrets. They were on their way to the United States to give those secrets away. Of course, in 1940, the United States was not yet engaged in the conflict, but Britain already had a year of invaluable military experience under her belt, much of it bought with lives lost in Norway and France. But above all, the British had already begun to put the new technologies of war into action and to learn how they would work in combat. They brought with them a vast range of plans, designs and techniques, things like the 40mm Bofors gun, which would become the standard anti-aircraft gun of the US and Great Britain during the Second World War. They brought with them also the first descriptions of Frank Whittle's jet engine, 
and when they began to meet with their American counterparts, they would talk openly about everything from chemical warfare to sonar. But in the context of the European War of 1940, there was one technology whose importance superseded everything else. Radar. Radar was really the key to the Tizard mission, and radar technology would have the biggest impact at this crucial juncture of the conflict. Radar had been in use since the beginning of the war, a key part of the Battle of Britain defences, allowing advance warning of approaching bombers, giving time to get the fighters off the ground, where they would have been sitting ducks, and into the air, where they were not only safer, but able to inflict some damage on the invading bombers. But the equipment required was huge, vast towers hundreds of feet high, stretching the length of the eastern coastline. The idea of putting radar in bombers to help them locate their targets seemed just a futuristic dream. But included in the technology that Tizard's elite team of scientists and engineers was carrying was the prototype that would not only alter the way radar could be used, but change the course of the war. It was the Cavity Magnetron. The Cavity Magnetron would make radar possible at the then astounding short wavelength of 10 centimetres and this opened up the extraordinary possibility of putting a very accurate radar set in very confined places, such as aircraft and small escort vessels in the Battle of the Atlantic. In 1940, when the Duchess of Richmond sailed, there were only a handful in existence, a key to a new kind of warfare. And the Tizard mission were taking one of them to America, Cavity Magnetron Number 12. Under the direction of Sir Henry Tizard, then Rector of Imperial College in London and one of Britain's top scientists, this high-powered team included representatives from the Army, Navy and Air Force, along with specialists in the new technologies of war. Edward Taffy Bowen, a young Welshman just 24 at the time, was the man with prime responsibility for radar, and it was his job to look after the box of tricks, Bowen was given the key task of going to General Electric in Wembley on the outskirts of London. They were the company that had taken on the job of manufacturing the magnetron, and they selected for him the best working magnetron from their original pre-production batch. Back at his hotel, he put it in the box with all the rest of those most secret papers, only to find the box was too big to fit in the hotel safe. So this box, full of Britain's top military secrets, spent the night under Bowen's bed. Then the following morning, Bowen found it was also too big to go inside a London cab. So he set off through heavy London traffic for the boat train, with the box of tricks lashed to the roof of the cab. But there was yet more drama when the station porter set off through the crowds with the box faster than Bowen could manage with his luggage. One can imagine Bowen struggling through the crowds, trying to keep his precious cargo in sight whilst at the same time rehearsing his speech to Sir Henry, explaining how he'd managed to lose all of the country's most important war secrets in a train station. Once on board the Duchess of Richmond, the box was made safe, locked and chained to the captain's desk for safekeeping up on the bridge, all set for its journey across the Atlantic. By August 1940, when the mission set sail, Britain had already been at war for nearly a year. Twelve months of almost unmitigated disaster, which had seen all her allies capitulate, leaving Britain to stand alone. And those scientists whose work was now on its way to America had already given Britain's fighter pilots a crucial advantage. 
Back in 1933, Sir Henry Tizard had been appointed to chair the Committee for the Scientific Survey of Air Defence. It was this committee that had fostered and promoted the development of defensive radar. But the technology alone would not suffice. Tizard's genius was to realise that it was vital to ensure that the services were made part of the development process, so that systems were developed in a practical and pragmatic fashion. Tizard knew that it was not enough to have good scientific equipment. You must also have a service educated to use it, a service whose feedback would then be invaluable in the further development of the system itself. This simple organisational approach made a huge difference to the technological war. Put bluntly, the British got technology that worked, by hook or by crook, out into the field, while the Germans were still perfecting theirs in the laboratory. What Britain urgently needed in order to pinpoint the German bombers now coming singly and at night was shortwave radar and the ability to produce it on a massive scale. But Britain's industry was on its knees and exposed to bombing on a daily basis. Getting the new technology to the front line in sufficient quantities seemed impossible. Britain needed allies with manufacturing muscle. America, still neutral but a productive powerhouse, was the obvious place to turn to for help. Of course, the two countries had been allies in the First World War, but after 1920 Britain and the US had pretty much stopped cooperating with each other on matters of science and warfare. And now there was a great deal of mistrust between the two powers, the United States the emerging superpower, Great Britain desperate to hang on to its place in the world. So the position on technical cooperation between Britain and the US was, throughout the 30s, pretty much a stalemate, with neither side willing to expose its carefully developed and hard-earned military secrets to the other. But I suppose you might be thinking right now, why would the British risk handing over these cutting-edge technologies, systems hard-won at the coalface of almost a year of conflict? Well, there was one piece of equipment that the British had been desperate to get their hands on for some time. It was the Norden Bombsight, a primitive computer developed by the US Navy which claimed to facilitate bombing accuracy hitherto unheard of. This was the prize the British were seeking in exchange, a piece of equipment which, it was thought, would transform the performance of the British bombers which were, this time, more or less the only means of attacking Germany. The British had nothing equivalent in their armoury and so important was it thought to be that Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain had written personally to President Roosevelt in 1939. I make this urgent personal request to you, he wrote, because Great Britain today faces the possibility of entering on a tremendous struggle, confronted as she is by a challenge to her fundamental values and ideals. Moreover, I believe they are values and ideals which our two countries share in common. Should war break out, my advisers tell me that we should obtain a greater increase in our effective power if we had the Northern bombsight at our disposal. But Chamberlain's entreaties fell on deaf ears. By the spring of 1940, the British had to accept that the idea of an exchange of technologies was dead in the water. And so too was Chamberlain. By May 1940, when Churchill took over as Prime Minister, the Germans had swept across the border into the Low Countries. Within a matter of weeks, Italy, with its powerful navy, had entered the war, and France was on the point of collapse. Secret reconnaissance showed that with little more than eyesight to guide them, British bombers were missing their targets by several miles. 
Henry Tizard's solution was radical, indeed to many, outrageous. He proposed that Britain should hand all its technological secrets to America, on a plate, no strings attached, in the simple hope that America would finally hand over the northern bombsite. With the final capitulation of France in June 1940, Britain stood alone against the Nazi threat, and many in Britain's scientific community found themselves simply forced to accept Tizard's way of thinking. The time for scientific hubris was over. America, after all, had emerged as the world's great industrial, scientific and technological powerhouse, and powerful voices in Britain were now saying that the one thing we lacked above all at this moment of ultimate peril is the ability to manufacture the necessary equipment at speed and in volume. And don't we really have much more to gain by giving away our secrets than we stand to lose? A German invasion was, after all, expected at any moment. But how did all this look across the Atlantic? Churchill, as we've seen, had already come round to the idea. But in the US, Roosevelt's position was complicated. Churchill knew that desperate measures were needed. He knew he had to draw the Americans into an alliance, and that without such an alliance, Britain simply could not weather the storm alone. It's clear that President Roosevelt was well disposed to the idea, seeing Britain as America's first line of defence against the global domination of Nazi Germany. But Churchill was also somewhat insensitive to the difficulties that Roosevelt had to face in the United States. The prevailing ethos in America was still one of isolationism, a fierce reluctance to be drawn into another European war. He was faced with a very strong anti-war neutralist feeling in the American Congress, and Roosevelt was concerned that if he were too open in actively supporting the British, Congress might be pushed into passing laws which would prevent him from giving any aid whatsoever. But as Churchill signalled Britain's determination to fight on, there was a gradual increase in America's willingness to help the British. And eventually in July 1940, just a couple of weeks after the fall of France, the British made their first formal offer to send a group of scientists and technical experts to the United States. And as they did so, the Germans launched their aerial assault on Britain, Europe's last outpost of democracy. The offer came in the form of a letter from Lord Lothian, the British ambassador in Washington. He wrote directly to President Roosevelt himself. 8th of July 1940, Mr President, he wrote, the British government has informed me that they would greatly appreciate an immediate and general interchange of secret technical information with the United States, particularly in the area of ultra-shortwave radio. It has been suggested by my government that in order to avoid any risk of the information reaching our enemy, a small secret British mission consisting of two or three service officers and civilian scientists should be dispatched immediately to enter into discussions. And so began the Tizard mission. But of course, by the time Tizard's team set out across the Atlantic in pursuit of the much-coveted Norden bombsite, they too had a secret weapon, the significance of which would turn out to dwarf anything the Americans had to offer, the cavity magnetron. It had been developed almost by accident six months earlier by two British scientists, John Randall and Harry Boot, working in secret at the University of Birmingham. It's worth noting in passing that for all the importance I and others ascribed to Randall and Boot's invention, they did in fact have competition for the title of most significant discovery coming out of the physics department of the University of Birmingham in 1940. 
because as they were working on the cavity magnetron, just down the corridor, Otto Frisch and Rudolf Piles were putting the finishing touches to their famous memorandum, published in March 1940, which was the first time anyone had set out the process by which an atomic explosion could be generated. The memorandum also predicted the effects of such an explosion, from the devastating power of the initial blast to the resulting fallout. This memorandum was the basis of British work on building an atomic device, and consequently of the Manhattan Project, which went on to produce the bombs with which America would put an end to the war in the East. All of which might well have come too late, were it not for the influence of the cavity magnetron and the other technologies with which the Tizard mission sailed to America in August 1940. There were nine members of the mission altogether, though Tizard himself had flown on ahead. He divided them into eight working groups, each representing a particular specialism. There were two radar groups, dealing with operational methods and technical details, a group dealing with the latest advances in ground-to-air gunnery, two groups responsible for new forms of defence against incoming aircraft, including the new proximity fuses which would revolutionise defence against air attack. Other key teams covered new developments in power units and armaments for aircraft, including powered gun turrets, which were new to the Americans. And finally, there was the all-important work on what would become known as IFF, how to ensure you didn't shoot down your own planes. So as Tizard's men set sail for America on board the Duchess of Richmond, the box of tricks that Taffy Bowen had chained to the captain's desk for safekeeping contained not just the magnetron, but also the blueprints for self-sealing fuel tanks, gyroscopic gun sights, the latest sonar advances and so on, making it arguably the most valuable cargo to be carried across the Atlantic during the war. In fact, so secret was the contents of the box that measures had to be taken to prevent it falling into enemy hands should the liner get bombed. The captain had been ordered to throw the box overboard if there were the least sign of trouble. But was that enough? The crossing to Nova Scotia took the best part of a week, and the scientists on board had much to discuss and worry about. So much so that one of the members of the mission, the eminent physicist Professor John Cockcroft, the man who had discovered the neutron in 1931, did what physicists often do when they've a few moments to spare. He did some calculations. The story goes that Cockcroft worked out that in the dreadful event of an enemy attack, the box of tricks would actually float if they had to throw it overboard, thereby allowing any inquisitive German sailors to simply pluck it out of the water. Cockcroft proposed that they drill some holes in the box, and Taffy Bowen, the designated keeper of the box, later recalled that he noticed the next day that holes had indeed been drilled to make sure it would sink if disaster should strike. Well, after a potentially hazardous Atlantic crossing, the Tizard mission docked safely at Halifax, Nova Scotia. They'd been accompanied on the journey by over a thousand officers and men of the Royal Navy, and only when they arrived did the reason for this become clear. They entered Halifax Harbour just in time to witness the handover of the first of 150 old American destroyers to the Royal Navy. They were part of the recently concluded Destroyers for Bases deal and further evidence of America's willingness to be drawn into the war effort, though only at a price. Sir Henry had flown on ahead, and by a strange quirk of fate, the first meetings in this great and extraordinary secret exchange 
would take place just as the Battle of Britain was reaching its height. He began by meeting with American officials, first Navy Secretary Franklin Knox, and then even President Roosevelt himself. And finally, after these preliminary meetings were over, and scientist was able to speak directly to scientist, the moment on which the course of the war would turn finally arrived, in a luxury penthouse suite at Washington's Wardman Park Hotel. It was here that Tizard's team finally produced, for the first time, the cavity magnetron from their black box. Tizard's men told their American counterparts that this tiny gadget could in fact make practical, working microwave radar. The Americans looked at it with utter amazement, and, as I suppose a good scientist might, they said, we want to test this right away. So Tizard and Bowen, taking the magnetron with them, boarded a plane to New York. The magnetron was on its way to the Bell Laboratories in New Jersey. Once there, the cavity magnetron was put on a test bed. They ran power through it. They knew that if it could do what was claimed for it, it would be seven times as powerful as any microwave source they had so far developed, and a thousand times more powerful than anything currently in use in America. The military planning of two great nations turned on this moment. Almost immediately, the machine began to produce a one-inch-long glow discharge from its output terminal. The power generated was, in fact, at 15 kilowatts, somewhat in excess of what the British had predicted, and the wavelength, the critical wavelength, was measured at precisely 9.8 centimetres. It was an astonishing moment, and one which should, you might think, immediately have cemented Anglo-American scientific relations. But remember that all this was happening in a climate of mutual distrust, and what was to happen next almost knocked the whole exchange off course. Because the very next day, Bowen got a telephone call from the scientists in New Jersey. Overnight, they had arranged for the cavity magnetron to be x-rayed, and the picture it revealed of the interior structure of number 12 had also revealed something of a problem. Dr. Bowen, they said, the magnetron you've given us doesn't match any of the drawings or the specifications you've given us. This came as a complete surprise to Bowen, who couldn't work out what had gone wrong. He needed to talk to General Electric's chief scientist in London. At first he couldn't figure it out either, and then he suddenly realised what must have happened. When he had ordered the manufacturer of the first eight prototypes, he had told his technician to build six with six holes, one with seven, and one with eight holes. And when Bowen had picked up the most recent, hot-off-the-press example, he'd selected the eight-hole magnetron, whereas the drawings only showed six. And that's how it is that all magnetrons subsequently built in America during the war had eight holes, whereas all British magnetrons had only six. And by the way, each worked just as well as the other, so eight is not necessarily better than six. So it was then that the cavity magnetron went into production. By September, MIT had set up a secret radiation laboratory, RADLAB. By November, the magnetron was in mass production, and many of America's top scientists had joined the team at RADLAB. And by early 1941, portable airborne radar had been developed and fitted to both American and British planes, and the course of the Second World War was about to be changed. And what of the Norden bomb site? Did the British get what they came for? Eventually, yes, 
but ironically the impact of the cavity magnetron would dwarf that of the northern site, which turned out to be well nigh useless in the cloudy conditions of the Western European theatre of war, and functionally inappropriate once the primary focus of Allied bombing had switched from precision daylight raids to area bombing at night. Conversely, the cavity magnetron became more and more important as scientists on both sides of the ocean worked on three parallel lines of development identified during the Tizard mission. First, to create radar systems small enough to fit into night fighter aircraft. Second, a navigational radar system so that planes could find their way through heavy overcast. And third, a radar-controlled anti-aircraft gun system. In all three goals, the Magnetron and the teams who developed them were hugely successful, and as a bonus, aircraft fitted with the new microwave radar were able to find the U-boats that were terrorising the Atlantic, and to turn the tide in the Battle of the Atlantic. Towards the end of World War II, American author James Finney Baxter was commissioned to write a definitive history of US scientific developments during the war. In it, he described the cavity magnetron unequivocally as the most valuable cargo ever brought to our shores. And that, of course, was before he had been able to see the full range of developments that the magnetron spawned after the conflict ended. So great and varied have they been that even Finney Baxter might have been astounded. Everything from the microwave oven that's in almost every kitchen, through cellular phones, to paving the way for radio astronomy. Well, as we've seen, the cavity magnetron was perhaps the most significant, in wartime certainly, of the secrets that Tizard handed over to the Americans. But there were, of course, many, many more. Tizard's men carried with them the knowledge of British work on an atomic bomb, which was at this stage well ahead of what was going on in the US. But they did not, yet, share that information. That would come later, and of course it's a whole other story. And as it happens, Many of the scientists who worked to develop the new microwave technologies would go on to join the Manhattan Project once their new weapons were out on the battlefield. So, as we close the lid on Tizard's box of tricks, I ask you to ponder this question about the difference this mission made to the post-war world. If, by way of example, the Americans had not been handed the basic design of Frank Whittle's engine and had not been able to build a civilian jetliner industry directly descended from the Whittle engine, how different might the post-war world have looked? If indeed there would even have been a post-war world for Britain.